Good evening. It's great to, to see you all here tonight. I'm John Wilsey. I teach church history here at Southern, and I want to just take a minute to introduce our, our guest uh, this evening. Uh, Professor Hall is uh, the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and also a faculty fellow in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. Uh, he holds his PhD from the University of Virginia, and uh, he is the author uh, and editor of uh, several books, about a dozen or so books, and um, you can uh, check those out on his Amazon page. But it's a great honor to have Professor Hall, you here with us today. Oh, thank Thanks you, so much for being here for this conversation, and I just want to give you an opportunity to um, tell us a little bit about your book, uh, what, your, what your argument is, and uh, just kind of give us the lay of the land. Yeah, well, thank you, John. Um, we thought we'd do this conversational style because John, of course, has written well on the subject. And so instead of me sitting up there or standing up there and giving a 40-minute lecture, we'll kind of go back and forth a little bit. So I have written a book. It's not out yet, but here's a pre-publication copy. Did America have a Christian founding? Question mark. And what I do in this book is, first of all, I explore the question. What might we mean by a Christian founding? And maybe we can chat about that later. The um, guts of the book, though, each chapter, each of the five substantive chapters, I set set up a myth, a very common myth, that scholars regularly tell about religion in the founding, or religious liberty and church-state relations. And by myth here, a myth, of course, can be a true story, but I I, I absolutely mean it in the usual common everyday usage of the word, a a false story, something that's false about um, religion in the American founding. So... Um, the first chapter, for instance, explores a very common claim that most or many of America's founders were deists. And this goes on all the time. Actually, to make sure people don't think I'm attacking a straw person, I begin each chapter with six prominent quotations from very important scholars, or well-known scholars at least. And then I, if you follow the footnote to the um, end notes, they're unfortunately end notes, uh, I have another 18 or so <coughs> quotations. Again, taken in context, I think fairly, this is what the authors are arguing. So this is a, it's a notion that is out there very, very broadly. Lots of good people, including Christian historians, regularly will say things like this. And so I set it up, and then I'd like to think I absolutely demolished the myth. Um, this one particularly, you know, by my count, there's maybe one founder who's a civic leader who's actually a deist, as the term is usually defined. And then I do this, um, the the next chapter is America has a godless constitution. Um, Isaac Kramnik and R. Lawrence Moore, two very prominent um, Cornell professors, came out with a book of that title some 15 years ago. It's out in the second edition. But you see people arguing this all the time. And so I I, um, delve into that. I I look into one of the sort of toughest selves is as I look at Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and people routinely say that Jefferson and Madison were committed to a strict separation of church and state. They certainly, at various points in their lives, penned a few documents that would seem to um, indicate that this is the case, most notably Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist and Madison's detached memorandum. But even there, I tried to complicate the story to say, yeah, these, these, these two wanted a greater separation they most founders, but even they in their actual practices certainly do not act as if the, um, the, 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 the church and state should be separated by a wall of separation or something of this nature. The um, last two chapters, one I look at religious liberty, and here a lot of scholars recognize that the founders embraced a pretty robust understanding of religious liberty. This has become pretty much of a consensus. What I argue against a lot of scholars is that they did so in large part for biblical and theological reasons, not because the Enlightenment somehow swept America and we embraced religious liberty, but for very biblical, very um, theological reasons. And you can trace this back to Roger Williams and others, you know, who's certainly no Enlightenment deist, right? But his reading of the Bible, his understanding of Christian theology leads him very early on in America's history to embrace this sort of view. And by the time we get to the late 18th century, it's all over the place. I mean, the Baptists are leaders, John Leland, Isaac Backus, but others are on board, again, uh, for Christian reasons. And then finally, I really take on the myth that um, the founders broadly conceived wanted a wall of separation between church and state. And the argument there is when you turn from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to the rest of the founding generation, and I mean broadly by that, the men, primarily men who are involved in leading the movement, breaking from Great Britain, and then particularly in this case, 
drafting the Constitution, ratifying the Constitution, drafting the First Amendment, and ratifying the First Amendment. Um, when we look at this broader constellation of men, there's just, you know, the separation of church and state just really is not there in any sort of its modern formulation. Certainly the founders believed that the church and state are separate institutions, and most Christians throughout most of history have held this. Uh, but there certainly was no notion that the church should not influence the state or vice versa. So that's, that's an overview of the book. Great, great. So what we're going to do is we're going to just have a conversation between the two of us for um, <clears throat> about 20, 25 or 30 minutes, and then uh, I'd like to open up the floor for questions from you as well um, in the last uh, 15, 20 minutes of our time. So <clears throat> as we go along, if you um, want to explore something a little bit more deeper than we are covering it, just uh, keep it in mind, and then you'll have an opportunity to ask a question about it later. So um, let me just ask you, um, as we kind of get, get into the, I, I really am intrigued by the way that the question uh, of the book is asked. Now, was, was this uh, the, a title that you picked for the book, or was it more of an editorial choice? No, this was a- absolutely my title. And it, in fact, sort of this thing had an origin. I gave a talk at the Heritage Foundation in 2010 on this question. And we were shocked. C-SPAN showed up and covered it. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I, I published the talk as an essay. And we learned a, um, oh, a couple years ago that it had been downloaded over 300,000 times. That is, not just viewed, but actually downloaded. Wow. And this was sort of the, the, um, the information I was able to use. <clears throat> uh, so this is my first book aimed at a general reading public. It, it's published by Nelson Books, um, which is owned by HarperCollins. And it really is a very different animal. The other dozen books I've done, written or edited, are pretty much just used by my fellow scholars. And, you know, that's a good thing in and of itself. But this is a book that really anyone with an interest in these sorts of things could pick up and read and profit from. Sure. And so, yeah, I did choose the title. So why did you pick this title? And um, why didn't you ask the question, was America founded as a Christian nation? Yeah, thank you. That's a a great... um, a great distinction, I think. Um, for me, I, I, the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation sounds awfully exclusive, as if it was a nation founded by Christians for Christians. And maybe we'll put up and tolerate non-Christians, but you know they're sort of here at um, our, our, our sufferance. And that is absolutely not the, the, the way I understand America's founding. I, in, in fact, and part of this gets into how I define, you know, what do we mean? by um, Christian founding. Um, one interpretation, one possible meaning of Christian would be that the founders identified themselves as Christians. If that's what we mean, indisputably we had a Christian founding because 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant. The other 2% are Roman Catholic. You have about 2,000 Jews in America in the late 18th century. So if that's what we meant, indisputably we have a Christian founding, but that's a very uninteresting finding, right? It might be the case that these are very unorthodox Christians. It might be the case that they're Christians influenced by non-Christian ideas. And if we had Christians influenced by non-Christian ideas, do we want to say that we had a Christian founding? So my approach, to make a long story short, is to look at the intellectual influences on America's founders. And here I'm in good company. Historians have spent lots and lots of time trying to discern were the founders locking liberals, classical Republicans, Scottish, they were influenced by the Scottish Enlightenment, the common law tradition. And so I put Christianity on the table. I'm not the first to do this by any stretch of the imagination, but I make an argument that Christianity was a very, very important influence on America's founders. I would say perhaps the most important influence Christianity proper, and then ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. So that's how I understand Christian founding. And the argument is that Americans, America's founders were led by their theological convictions, by their Christian convictions, to create a constitutional order that benefits everyone in this nation. It benefited everyone in the nation in the late 18th century. It benefits us today. Things like separation of powers, checks and balances, rule of law, a a Christian conception of liberty, which we've largely gone away from, um, and definitely an understanding of religious liberty that clearly protects non-Christians, protects Protestants, protects Catholics, protects Jews, and as America has become more diverse, it certainly protects Muslims and Hindus and others in the exact same way that it protects um, Christians. Inside that, I think it's an important distinction, at least in my mind. Mm. So would you say that... um uh, that it's 
very clear uh, that America had a Christian founding. Yes, I, I believe that it is. Now, we have to recognize, of course, that there are all sorts of influences floating around. Yeah. Clearly, the founders are reading a Montesquieu and a Locke, and you know, they're reasonably clad, classified as Enlightenment thinkers. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the common law tradition impacts us. I mean, you, you'd look long and hard in the Bible and Christian theology to come to the conclusion that a jury should be 12 persons. Right, as sort of a joke, it's not there. You know, that's something we inherited from our British common law tradition. And so we have to understand. And then, of course, America's founders were human, right? They were influenced by self interest and petty jealousies. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's messy. Historians often like to emphasize the messiness of history. But I still think you can make a very, very good argument that Christian ideas, and I lay these out, right? I'm not just talking in the abstract. Things like the fact that humans are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, mm-hmm. that humans are sinful, that even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. Um, you can't understand the founders' understanding of liberty if you don't understand that they distinguish between liberty and licentiousness. Um, and, and on we could go, and on I do go in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's that clear, then why is this controversial? That is a great question. I'm going to weigh in, but I want this to be a, a kind of a two-way conversation, so, I, so I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. I think there's a, a variety of different answers, and it probably depends on what part of America's um, founding we're talking about. I, I'll just um, suggest what I think one of the most obvious answers is, and maybe you can throw out some of your thoughts. When it comes to religious liberty and church-state relations, um, in the mid-20th century, the U.S. Supreme Court was looking for a usable past. And um, in Everson versus the Board of Education, a 1947 case, the case had applied the Establishment Clause to the states. The Establishment Clause, of course, the first part of the First Amendment, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. All right, well, what does that mean? Um, simple words would suggest we aren't going to have a national church, right? Well, um, in, in this opinion, Hugo Black for the majority, Wiley Rutledge for the dissent, they agreed on this. They agreed on something I call Everson's syllogism, and it goes like this. We must interpret the First Amendment in light of the founders' views. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison equal the American founders. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wanted the strict separation of church and state. Therefore, the Establishment Clause requires the strict separation of church and state. All right? Now, I, I think it's just a nonsensical. You've already heard part of my argument. This, this is just ridiculous. Even Jefferson and Madison in their own practices did not act as if there was this high wall of separation between church and state. And when you turn from those two to the rest of the founding generation, there is just simply not a good historical argument. There just literally is not. And yet these justices, um, for a variety of reasons, and we could get into that, wanted to find a historical argument to support a desired outcome. So they made these, um, these arguments. Almost right away, um, a, a couple of great historians said, you've got to be kidding me, this is ridiculous. But it took hold, and it took hold for a variety of reasons. The academy was largely controlled at this time, even more so than today, by secular progressives who wanted this sort of separation. And so these ideas just became commonplace and really did not become challenged. Every once in a while, a historian or an attorney would challenge them. Um, William Rehnquist came along and as a justice started challenging them. But as late as 1983, Rehnquist is pretty much the only justice who recognized that this Everson syllogism is profoundly faulty. Um, since that time, I think because of a lot of scholarship and other things, and, and of course Republican appointees that are maybe more open to the scholarship, um, the justices have shifted pretty dramatically. So a search for the usual past would be one explanation. Um, you know, not a real interest in history, but let's find something useful. What would you say, John? Why do you think, and you might not think it's as obvious as I am, but I I, I presume you agree that academics have had a tendency to downplay the importance of Christianity. Why do you think that is? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the breakdown of the Protestant consensus that we see since really the Civil War. Um, And you have a number of, of different reasons for that. Some of those reasons are, you know, really good. They, um, we have a, a sort of a broadening of pluralism. Um, uh, in the 1890s, first decade of the 1900s, 1910s, 19, up to about 1924, you have a huge influx of Roman Catholics uh, come in to the United States, whereas before they had not been as welcome. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, you have uh, people coming from 
regions of the world that are not as well represented in, in immigration, like from Russia, from Slavic countries, southeastern Europe, and those are, those are certainly uh, elements in there. Um, but then there's some other bad things. Uh, the, the end of the Civil War comes along, and there is a um, sort of an end to um, sort of a, um, you know, a universal uh, American trust in the Bible. Um, because Americans had differed so, so greatly on how to interpret the Bible. And this is one of the things that's sort of lurking in the background with the Civil War, right? And so with the, uh, with the destruction of the Civil War, you have almost 700,000 people are dead. Um, you have the economy of the South. The, the, the land in the South is completely destroyed. Um, and then, of course, you have, uh, you have the rise of Jim Crow and, those sorts, and, the, and the rise of um, sort of an apartheid in the, in, mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, these are things that undermine uh, confidence in, um, in, in Christian, uh, you know, Christian assertions, Christian authorities, the, the scripture, the church as an institution, um, the authorities of, uh, of clerics, of, of members of the clergy. Um, and so that by the time you get to, to that case in 1947, um, you know, m- most of that breakdown in the Protestant consensus, consensus has already occurred. You sort of see a culmination of that in the 60s um, with uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Act in 1965, and then you have, of course, the sexual, sexual revolution of the late 70s, reaction against Vietnam, and, uh, and other, other things that are really anti-authoritarian and undermine institutions. Which, so there's a lot of reasons for this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think, I think that's a, it's an interesting point that you bring out, a search for a usable pet. What, you, you mentioned that there were some things, some reasons why uh, those Justice Hugo Black, mainly, who was the person who wrote uh, the, the majority opinion in that case, um, why, what were some of the reasons? Why would he... Why, why, would the, why would the court be searching for a usable past in 1947 in order to advance um, an agenda that was really not historical, that was really not um, uh, reflective of sort of the mind of the founders as a whole or of the mind of, of more broadly speaking, maybe say the, the, those who were present at the Constitutional Convention, inst- in, instead of looking at these, these two... People. One of one of him was not even at the Constitutional Convention. Thomas right. Yeah. There. No, absolutely. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that ever since syllogism is so fundamentally flawed, Jefferson didn't help write the First Amendment. Just Jefferson didn't help draft the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. He's not even in America at the time. Yeah. yeah and there's just no good reason. Um, there's a, a side argument we can make about Virginia statute for religious liberty. But let me um, an- answer your question. I suspect it's a leading um, question because I think you know what I'm going to answer. A fellow named <laughs> Philip Hamburger wrote a great book, The Separation of Church and State, and he points to the, uh, this influx of Catholics in, uh, in the 19th century, beginning in the 1830s and progressing. So Roman Catholics, you recall I said, are about 2% of the American population in the late 18th century. This jumps to like 20-some percent in the 1830s, and it gets up there, you know, 25, 26, 27%. Um, really until um, pretty much the rest of American history, right? I think Roman Catholics are still around 25% of the population. And there is a profound suspicion of these Roman Catholics, Um, sometimes for very unfounded and unfair reason. There was a genre of um, basically escape narratives that came out in the 1830s of, of purportedly nuns who escaped from convents and then told about how the priest would come in and rape the nuns. And when some of the nuns got pregnant and had babies, they would baptize the babies and they kill them and bury them in the convent. Mm. You know, just crazy, wacky stuff like that. But, you know, this was very, very popular literature among Protestants, as you might imagine. It's, oh my goodness, you know, this is scary. Uh, there is, of course, you know, just a, a general conviction that um, Roman Catholics are wrong theologically. Um, something important, and um, this has to be handled with some delicacy, but I think it's fair to say that as a matter of official policy, the Roman Catholic Church really is against things like religious liberty, individualism, democracy. Um, throughout, uh, throughout the 19th century, well into the 20th century, you have papal encyclicals that are really quite clear on these points um, that pretty much say the Roman Catholic Church should be made the official church 
of any country where it could possibly be made. You have Roman Catholics who aren't all that smart. Some of them, I mean, many are very smart, but some who weren't smart, you know, bishops in, in the American cities who would say, yeah, we're going to take over this nation. And so this is kind of scary from the Protestant perspective, right? Now, one of the things you have in the mid-19th century is a rise of public schools for the first time, really. You know, what we would think of as a, as a public school, you know, in early Massachusetts, there was legislation basically requiring parents to um, create a school so their children would be educated. But that's really something akin to a homeschool co-op or a private school where, you know, maybe many of you all have your children or went to school. But, you know, we're talking real public schools run by the state. Children go there. Um, Of course, they were religion-infused. They read the King James Version of the Bible. They prayed and this sort of thing. Horace Mann, the father of public education in America, was overt about the agenda of the public school. That sounds sort of um, sort of conspiratorial, but I don't think it was a conspiracy. It was overt about it. We want the public schools to take these immigrants and make them into good, democratic, Protestant Americans. Well, as you might imagine, the Roman Catholics weren't really thrilled with this agenda. Mm-hmm. And so they started, particularly where they were in decent numbers, they started making very reasonable demands. They said, hey, look, we're all paying taxes to support these Protestant schools. Why don't you give us our share of the tax dollars and we'll fund Roman Catholic schools? And the Protestants, elites, uh, most Protestants said, this cannot happen. This cannot happen. Uh, A side request was, okay, how about in the schools where we have majority Catholic, why don't we read the Douillet version of the Bible instead of the Roman Catholic version? The Protestant response was the same. Um, We cannot support sectarian education because we have a separation of church and state. Now think about what the claim is here, right? Um, It's perfectly fine to have public schools that are Protestant schools, but we can't fund sectarian Education, by which we, we, we mean Roman Catholic. And so it's in this era that people started talking about the separation of church and state. It's in this era where an amendment called the Blaine Amendment was proposed at the national level, which would have prevented state governments right. um, from funding sectarian education. When this failed, it passed in the House, failed in the Senate. 37 states passed their own Blaine Amendments, and we still are dealing with these in American law to this day. Well, this sort of trend continued on into the 20th century. So I'm from the great state of Oregon. We like to think of ourselves as progressive. Well, in 1920, we did a very progressive thing. We banned all private schools in the state. Well, that sounds fair, right? Well, it's maybe fair until you recognize that every single private school in the state was Roman Catholic, with one exception. It was an anti-Catholic move, and it was a move encouraged by the KKK, the new KKK, the revitalized KKK, and the Masons working together. Um, and, you know, they kind of revitalized for this anti-Catholicism. In the 1920s, the KKK is much more interested in keeping the Catholics down than worrying about race, believe it or not. Um, and this then ties in, to get to your question, it's a very long-winded answer. Hugo <laughs> Black is a member of the KKK when he's in Alabama. Um, Seven out of the nine justices on the Everson Court were Masons. In 1948, a fellow named Paul Blanchard writes these, um, you know, really sensational um, attacks on the Roman Catholic Church and others, the Roman Catholic agenda and this sort of thing. Paul Blanchard, this guy is cited in U.S. Supreme Court opinions as, as, as an authority as to why we cannot allow this sort of separate, why we have the separation of church and state. So it's almost solely, to my way of thinking, propelled by Mm anti-Catholicism. Now, something funny happens, and the Protestants are all behind this. And we can't forget to mention the founding of my favorite organization, or it's really not my favorite organization, Protestants and Other Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Think about that. Protestants, and I hate to say it, John, but Baptists were behind this in a big way. Protestants and Other Americans United for Separation of Church and State this organization is still with us today. They dropped the Protestant Americans United for Separation of Church and State. So this was founded. Again, it was anti-Catholic. But in the 1960, there was a little jujitsu trick where all of a sudden the U.S. Supreme Court said, surprise, separation of church and state means what it, what it says. We're no longer going to have prayer in public school. We're no longer, no longer going to have uh, Bible reading in public schools. And now, all of a sudden, man, Protestants said, what? This is not what we signed up for. And there was a, um, a, a huge backlash against this. 49 out of 50 governors um, uh, objected to these de- 
decisions. There were like 170 Supreme Amendments, constitutional amendments introduced in Congress. And um, you had this breakdown in the separationist um, movement. Why did it flip like that in the, in the 60s? I think it was because you had these elite justices um, who had embraced, I think for principled reasons, not for anti-Catholic reasons, that church and state should be separate, that we shouldn't have Bibles in school and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this really took by surprise um, the Protestants who had hereto been uh, in favor of separation of church and state, and it led to a major realignment, whereas today, you know, Protestants and Catholics conservative Protestants, Catholics, work together all the time, right, against what we oftentimes perceive as a secular progressive agenda. Yeah. That was a very long answer to the question. I'm glad I'm sorry that was about great. That, I'm glad you covered that. It's great. Because um, I don't think a lot of people realize. I mean, I think that, um, uh, I think people often associate this early decision, 1947, as um, sort of a secular kind of a, kind of a thing, and it really wasn't that. No. Now, if we could get back to the 18th century, then could you... Um, just help us out. I mean, what what exactly? Can you express? Tell us what is deism? I mean, you deal with this in one, in your early in one of your early chapters. What exactly is this, and how prevalent was this in America in the 18th century? Um, and and was it as prevalent a thing among the founders? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So deism is a, a, is a movement that comes out of the Enlightenment uh, a relig- within religion, places a heavy emphasis upon reason. Um, deists usually um, depart from Christian doctrines that seem unreasonable. The Trinity. How can three and one and one be three, right? That's unreasonable. How can God become man? That's not reasonable. How can water become wine? That's not reasonable. So deists generally reject miracles and doctrines like the um, incarnation and the Trinity and so forth. Um, Critically important for our point, I sort of alluded to this, they reject miracles as the term is usually defined, right? The classic analogy is a watchmaker. Um, a God who creates something and then steps away. And the thing continues to run by the rules he set in place, but this God is definitely not intervening in human affairs. So the problem here is there are just a bazillion books saying most or many of America's founders were deists. Now, there are all sorts of problems um, with this. Let me, let me begin, and this is one of, uh, one of my answers for why there's so much uh, misinformation on this. Because book after book, there are tons of books on the religious beliefs of the founding fathers. Now, no, that, that's a pretty broad claim, right? But they all work in this way, literally all of them, with minor variations. All of them look really carefully at the religious views of George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, the four founders who became president. They also look almost inevitably at Alexander Hamilton and Ben Franklin. And then usually a favor, uh, an additional favorite would be thrown in. Maybe a James Monroe, maybe a Tom Paine or Ethan Allen or someone like that. And so these um, scholars then look at these individuals really, really carefully. And what do they find? Well, they certainly find that several of them are clearly not Orthodox Christians. By any, definite, by any stretch of the imagination, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams are not Orthodox Christians. They're clearly on record departing from very, um, very traditional Christian doctrines. And some of the others um, do some nasty things. Alexander Hamilton clearly had an extramarital affair. And so these founders look at these folks, and then they'll say things like, well, you know, and it is kind of interesting. I've challenged many of my friends who say this sort of thing. I've asked them literally, and you've got to be careful with this sort of question, but I said, look, give me one piece of evidence that George Washington... James Madison or Alexander Hamilton departed from any basic tenet of Orthodox Christianity. Any, just one, at any point in his life. No one has ever given me any clear piece of evidence. Well, that's kind of telling and a little bit scary. What do they say? Well, they say things like, well, George Washington doesn't usually or hardly ever says Jesus. He's more likely to refer to providence or God or Father. Alexander Hamilton had an affair. In 1812, Bishop Meade visited James Madison, and he came away with the impression that Madison's creed was not strictly regulated by the Bible. Well, that's evidence that should be taken seriously, but we've got to wonder, you know, Bishop Meade visited Madison once, and he came away with an impression 
And what does it mean that one's creed isn't strictly regulated by the Bible? I could easily imagine a fundamentalist six-day creation um, Christian comes and talks to me, and I say, yeah, I'm open to the idea that maybe God chose to use ages rather than little 24-hour periods to create the world. Now, you might disagree with that. You might not. I don't really care. Um, I I care about what you think, but it is for this purpose. But my point is, is fundamentalists might go away and say, yeah, that Professor Hall's creed is not strictly regulated by the Bible. Whereas I would beg to differ. I mean, the Bible is my highest authority. I look to it um, you know, for um, all sorts of guidance. And he and I might disagree on this, but you know, for him to say that I don't take the Bible seriously is profoundly problematic. So they, they, um, they, they generalize from these five, six, seven founders, and um, they oftentimes make leaps that they somehow are deists, even though Washington references God intervening in human affairs 270 times. He talks about it all the time, right? Even at Jefferson and Franklin, really all these founders do that regularly. Even Tom Paine, believe it or not, references God intervening in human affairs. Now, you might object and you would be fair. I think in Tom Paine's case, he's just simply making this reference for rhetorical purposes. And we have lots of evidence, uh, you know, because he later lays out his religious convictions in the Age of Reason, a a, a tome, really a three-part tome he wrote when he went back to Europe, where he clearly lays out, he's basically screaming, I am a deist, all right? But when Jefferson, when Payne comes back to America, he's vilified because of the Age of Reason. Tom Payne, Elias Boudinot, and others write book-length rebuttals of it. No one will have anything to do with them except for Thomas Jefferson and a few friends. When Payne dies, even the Quakers won't let him be buried in a churchyard. You know, he's vilified because of it. Um, and so the, 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 the broader point is, first of all, these, um, there, there are claims that these folks are deists when they might just be not Orthodox Christians. The evidence very, is very weak when it comes to someone like a George Washington not referencing Jesus does not make one a deist, right? But here's a final point, if I may. Um, these are very unrepresentative Americans. Everyone on that list, with one exception, by the end of his life was either a lifelong Anglican or was worshiping in an Anglican church. All right? In this era, 15% of Americans are Anglican, but this makes about 85% of our sample who's Anglican. 50 to 75% of Americans in this era are regularly um, labeled Calvinist. Only one member of this sample is a member of a Calvinist church. John Adams, a Congregationalist. I've already conceded he's not an Orthodox Christian, uh, but if you look more broadly at Calvinists in this era, you find that John Adams is really quite unrepresentative. Again, you take people like um, Ben Franklin, lived half of the last 35 years of his life in Europe. Uh, Adams and Jefferson spent significant time in Europe. Alexander Hamilton isn't even from America, nor is Tom Paine. This is what social scientists call a very unrepresentative sample. And so by looking at this unrepresentative sample, you can come up with a view that, I mean, it's just wrong to say they're deists. It's more accurate to say they're not Orthodox, pious Christians. That's more accurate by far. But to generalize from these six, seven um, Americans to the broader founding generation is just horrible social science. And when you dig down into the rest of these founders, even you know, if we limit ourselves to fairly important ones, men at the federal convention, governors, men in the first federal Congress, a very different picture um, comes into focus. So uh, in your book, do you talk about uh, Lutz's study of the uh, 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 founding period from 1760 to 1805 um, and the sources that uh, that founding generation draws from? Um, do you, do you, do you, I do, yeah. Talk, talk about that some. This is a brilliant study, and it's actually begging to be done again with modern technology and so forth. So Donald Lutz took 15,000 documents from the founding era, broadly 1760 to 1805. He narrowed this down to 2,200 that were political in nature. He then cut this down to 916 um, that were political in nature, and he uh, then looked at them to see who was cited, who was um, appealed to as authorities in one way or the other. And then he analyzes this, and he breaks it up by decade and this sort of thing. What he finds is the Bible is by far and away the most cited source. 34% of all these citations are to the Bible. The Enlightenment comes in at about 22%. Now think about that, the Enlightenment, Enlightenment thinkers. So add all of them up, Locke, Montesquieu, Bakari, Smith, and a handful of others. All of them combined are 22% 
of the um, of the study. So the Bible is far more often cited than the Enlightenment thinkers, and you have a bunch of other traditions. But here's what's critically important. Lutz tells us he's excluding from his study political sermons that do not also reference secular authors. But these are political documents, and um, they're, they're plentiful, and they're important, very important in this era. So he excludes them from his study. The other thing he does is he's not counting references to, or, or allusions to Scripture, which America's founders did all the time. George Washington references Micah 4.4 alone more than 40 times, but he doesn't put in the little parenthetical citation, Micah 4.4. So all of these sorts of references are missed by um, Donald Lutz. I'm not, I'm not blaming Lutz. I'm just simply saying that if we were to redo the study today with computer technology, I'm sure we could do a much better job, a higher sample, catching these references. I think you would find that the Bible absolutely dwarfs, by far and away, by far more than its original study showed, um, these Enlightenment thinkers. And again, we have to be careful. You know, someone could cite the Bible just because he thinks it would be politically effective. Uh, but still, you know, when you dive into this, um, the primary sources that John and I have done, I, I, I think a, a pretty clear picture begins to emerge, and it's a picture that shows the influence of Christianity being a, a, a predominant influence, it seems to me. A um, couple more, maybe one more question, and we'll turn to the audience. All right. But, um, so we've been talking about the founders, and you know the founders are not really one thing, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can't we can't just sort of you know take all these personalities that are very different and different kinds of um, you know different political beliefs, different religious beliefs. Yep. Uh, they come from different different colonies, different regions of the of British North America, and so we often say the founders, but we really that, that's a that's a misnomer. I mean, it's not a monolithic group we're talking about. It's very diverse. But having put that aside for a minute, um, if you were to compare, say, um, those who were at the Constitution Convention in 1787 um, and their influence with the common people in the United States during that period, compare their influence with the influence of pastors who are giving sermons uh, week after week after week and many of them are, are preaching sermons uh, that have to do with national identity and national identity formation mm-hmm. and the use of the Bible in, in that. Um, you know, which of these two groups would you say was more influential in terms of, this, in terms of just common people? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. And um, yeah, it's hard. You know, I don't want to say either or, but both and. But yeah, I'd have to say pastors. And you know, particularly in um, these Reformed communities, you would be very likely to go to church twice on Sunday and once on Thursday night and sit there and listen to the most informed man, the best educated man in your community. You know, within these Congregationalists and Presbyterian churches, you got the graduates of Harvard and Yale and um, what we call Princeton today. Yeah, they were enormously influential. And there was very much a sense that, yeah, the church and, church and state are separate institutions, but there should be a um, working together. These election sermons that we both mentioned and what this refers to, especially in New England, you would have um, biannual elections. After one of these elections, you would bring in all the newly elected um, members of the state legislature. You'd bring in all the clergy from the established church, the Congregational Church, in this case, in Connecticut, Massachusetts. And one pastor would be picked to preach a sermon to everyone. And this would oftentimes be an instructional sermon. Okay, legislators, here's what you need to consider. Here's your duty. Here's what you ought to do. Almost inevitably, at the end of um, this, the legislature would vote to say thank you to the minister and appropriate funds to print the sermon. That would then be circulated. Yeah, the sermon literature was tremendously important and influential. Let, let me say a brief word, um, because I, I'm an originalist. I, I believe that we should go to the original understanding of these texts. And I know you weren't saying this, but sometimes people say originalism is, is nonsensical because people had different views. Well, that certainly is true, but originalists never have insisted that everyone has to have the same view. To take an obvious debate, you had founders who supported the Constitution. You had founders who opposed the Constitution. They were called anti-federalists. So here are groups of people who differed, but guess what? One of these groups lost, the anti-federalists. And so when, you know, if we want to ask, did the founders 
um, intend to create this constitution that we have today. I, I think we have to say yes, recognizing, of course, that it wasn't every person conceivably called a founder, uh, but it, it was um, this group that happened to win. If I can real quickly um, push this on to the First Amendment, um, it is the case that founders differed with respect to religious liberty, church-state relations, but here I argue I think there was a profound consensus. They're really among the, the political class of Americans, the sort of men, and they would have only been men in Sarah, elected to state legislatures, appointed to ratification convention, and elected to Congress, um, and this sort of thing. There really was widespread agreement that religious liberty is a sacred right that should be both robustly protected. And even if you had some outliers who would have not denied that, there is a founding consensus. I, I would say it would be somewhat similar. Um, what some of these historians do who want to talk about how messy things are, it would be similar to this. The argument that we can't really say anything today about African-American voting behavior because some African-Americans are Republican, some are Democratic, some are even socialist. So we just can't say anything meaningful. Well, that's nonsensical, right? We can say very, you know, what I just said was true, obviously, um, but you know, we can say very meaningful things. The vast majority of African-Americans, over 90, 90%, vote Democratic in any given presidential election. That's a very powerful thing to say, right? And we need to pr pretend that the story is complicated. I think, especially with respect to religious liberty and church-state relations, you can make that sort of strong claim about the right. founders, that there really was, um, with some issues they disagreed, the value of state establishments, but broadly I think there was very widespread mm -hmm. consensus. Good. Well, what questions do you have uh, that you'd like to raise for Dr. Hall? Don't be shy. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, for, for a reader who reads the book and comes away with an understanding of the founding fathers, what do you hope changes in their life now? That is a great question. It's a question my aunt wife has asked for my first dozen books. So what? <laughs> so what? Who cares what Roger Sherman thought, James Wilson thought, and this sort of thing? I, and I think it's a very good question. This book, uh, Did America Have a Christian Founding, coming out in October, um, it does clearly have a so what. And there's a couple of so what's. Um, first of all, let me just say, I think history matters for its own sake. We want to get our history right. That's worthwhile in and of itself. Uh, but I do quote James Wilson, who says, look, in any functioning regime, we should be brought back to first principles. We shouldn't just go on mindlessly, but we should think about the principles upon which this constitutional order was created and then reflect how they might apply today. And I think some of these, the idea that all humans are created in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. I mean, this is very important and very applicable to issues such as abortion, it seems to me. Um, this idea that religious liberty is, it should be robustly protected and, um, and that it belongs to all Americans. You know, one of my favorite letters, I quote it twice, is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. Remember, there's 2,000 Jews scattered in four American, five American cities. This is not a powerful constituency. Uh, but he makes it clear religious liberty is for you, just like the Catholics, just like the Protestants. And I think we need to remember that religious liberty is under assault today in a way that it hasn't been... Um, really in the late 20th century, and I think we should uh, be up in arms about it. Not literally, of course, uh, but we should care about it. We should, you know, this ask... This is being recorded, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should act, act, ask our elected officials about it. We should um, be vigilant about it. We should consider supporting some of these fine groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and First Liberty, Christian Legal Society, the Beckett Fund, that are out there fighting on the front lines every day. So that's a very important so what. So I, I, I do hope, and I know, believe me, I know, um, everyone is busy. We're doing important things, raising families, um, preaching the gospel, sharing our, our faith. And, you know, I, I certainly don't think we should all become political animals. But I think in America, we are citizens. We all get to vote. And politics should take at least some of our attention. And we should bother to advocate for these important principles. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Dr. Hall, uh, one way uh, this question is often pursued, especially in evangelical circles, is beyond just merely asking whether or not Christianity influenced the founding, but also whether or not America was intended to be a Christian nation. So popular examples of that would be like the light and the glory by Peter Marshall, or like rushing within Christian Reconstructionism. And so my question then is, how can we as modern Christians try to meaningfully understand our nation's heritage in relation to Christianity and modern citizenship without going to the same extremes that people such as Marshall and Rushton did? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very important. It's a distinction we mentioned earlier. I, I, I think to speak of a Christian founding is to speak of the Christian influence this is upon the founders, but then we need to look at what they created. And they created a system of, of um, religious liberty that applied to all. They banned religious tests um, for federal offices. I think that's very important. In the ratification debates, people raised objections. Oh my goodness, this means a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist could become president. And the federalists had to say, yes, it does. Now, I think it's fair to say that you know many of these federalists did not think these would be desirable outcomes, and maybe they weren't ever thinking it would ever be realistic that a Muslim might be elected to that. But they recognize that it's at least a logical implication. Um, yeah, I think America created a welcoming um, a, a country where all could come and become good American citizens. This is about pretty much exactly what Washington said to the Jews. He said, all are welcome here. Um, we aren't going to tolerate you. We're going to respect your right to religious liberty. But he kind of went on to say, as long as you're good citizens. And that's an important point, right? Religious liberty is not an excuse to, um, you know, to, to do horrible acts, to, um, you know, no one can sacrifice a baby in the name of religion. You know, there are limits to these things. Um, we have duties, and so, um, you know, religion is not a get-out-of-duty-free card. Um, in dealing with religious pacifists, for instance, I think America has actually been fairly generous. Um, we've said to religious pacifists, both in the colonies, in the states, and in the first Selective Service Act, the first serious National Selective Service Act, um, we've said, if you are a religious pacifist, we will not force you to serve in combat, but you must serve in other ways, either in a non-combat capacity, and if you object to doing even that, we'll let you do basically... Um, charity-type work in a domestic context, working as a hospital orderly or something like that. And I think that's, um, you know, that's America at its best. And I would hope we would continue to do that sort of thing um, for religious minorities who are far more likely to run afoul of general laws than are the majorities who can protect themselves pretty well um, through the democratic process. Uh, yes, sir, and then over here. Uh, Dr. Hall, and for your, um, this has to do with methods of research. What research or what sources did you find most convicting in reaching your conclusions? Was it things like the Constitutional Convention, the like Elliott's debates, or the state ratification debates, or public and private letters among individuals? What did you find most compelling? For well, that's a great question. Um, in some ways, I couldn't have written this book 25 years ago. So I've been working on religion and the American founding in a serious way for probably 25 years. And I say this not to brag, but just to um, be descriptive. I, I've written or edited a dozen academic books, you know, published by Cambridge and Oxford and Notre Dame, you know, good academic presses that have been reviewed by, uh, reviewed by my peers. So I have spent a ton of time in all sorts of primary sources, and I draw from them all, and I think it's important to draw from them all. I do think those um, public sources, sources that are available to the public, are products of communities that are then um, ratified by larger um, groups are, are maybe more important. So the Constitution, the Declaration, the, um, you know, that are created by communities, ratified by larger communities, well, in the Constitution's case, in the First Amendment's case. You know, obviously we need to look very carefully at both the documents and the debate surrounding those documents to get a sense of what they meant. You know, it's, um, it is kind of interesting. You say, take someone like Thomas Jefferson. I spend time and I deal with these things. But, you know, it's almost impossible to know that he is not an Orthodox Christian from anything he ever did or said publicly. About the closest he comes is in the notes on the state of Virginia where he said, it does me no harm if my neighbor believes there is one God or many gods or no God. Now, I think that's actually kind of true, right? I, I, I could be very comfortable living next to an atheist who was a kind, gentle soul. Uh, but he got crucified because of this statement. Um, in the election of 1800, it came close to costing the election of 1800. Everything we know about Jefferson's views are from private letters that he made sure to keep private. And so I, I just give you that as an example where I think it is important to maybe to, to um, distinguish between a private letter like that and a public document. Let me just tell a quick story because I love the connection. So the day after the House arrived at its final language for the First Amendment, Elias Boudinot, a representative, later president of the American Bible Society, one of the founders of the American Society, he said, hey, we should ask, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, we should ask President Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Adonis Burke of South Carolina said, oh, we can't do that. That's a um, European practice. 
Roger Sherman stood up and say, said, no, it's okay, we can do it. It's a biblical practice. And he pointed to Solomon and other biblical, biblical examples. And he said, this is something worthy of Christian imitation. So these are debates, public debates in the House of Representatives that were recorded by newspapers. All right, the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House. And President George Washington, who's a pretty important guy, agreed with Congress and issued a rich and robust Thanksgiving Day proclamation that went out to the nation. So to look at these public debates and public, um, in, in, in public pronouncements of the President of the United States, I, I think has to be given additional weight vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, someone's private diary entry. A great example of this is Madison's detached memorandum. Madison, as president, issued four calls for prayer and fasting. He voted to pay congressional chaplains. And yet, after he left office, he penned a document saying, yeah, maybe those things are unconstitutional. But this is a private doc document that was unpublished in his lifetime. So what should be given more weight? His four presidential calls for prayer and fasting, his voting for, to pay congressional chaplains, or this private set of reflections after he left the presidency. So I appreciate this. I think it is useful to think about what sort of document it is. Uh, based on many, many years in the primary sources, I, I think the evidence is just absolutely overwhelming that America had a Christian founding. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, so my question is, what um, practical ways did the founders want the church to actually affect the state? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I, I, I would, I'll actually steal from Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress, so a wonderful um, historian and a great student of this question. And he has uh, labeled something that everyone knows about who studied this, but he comes up with a neat label called the Founder Syllogism. The Founder Syllogism, according to Jim Hudson, is this, that in order for Republican government to work, the people must be moral. In order for the people to be moral, they must be religious. And some progressives might get excited. Oh, religion, that's broad. In the era, everyone understood what that meant. This is Christianity. They must be Christians. And so churches need to do at least what we usually think of churches as needing to do. Proclaim the gospel and administer the sacraments. That might not be the first thing that you think about in a Southern Baptist context, <laughs> but many Christians would think about that. And by proclaim the gospel, I mean literally the, uh, the, the gospel that leads one to salvation, but more broadly, you know, preaching the word, helping children and families grow in the knowledge of the things of God. And this will result in a, in a moral or more moral people that will make Republican government possible. It will give people the ability to check their emotions, to treat others with respect, to engage in truthful speech, and this sort of thing. Yes, I think churches primarily need to do what churches um, should be doing, and should have been doing then, should have been doing now. Um, not necessarily. I, I would not say that they had any particular vision of the church being politically active in the sense of endorsing candidates, or issuing policy prescriptions. And here I think we need to be real careful and think about institutional competencies. So every once in a while when the nation might be heading to war, you might hear some sort of um, statements, the United Methodist ministers are against this sort of attack. And you know, generally I don't like war, I'm not a fan of war, but I'm not sure what these United Methodist ministers necessarily know about whether or not um, America should engage in a military assault in North Korea or Iran, and so I think um, you know churches should be kind of careful about where they speak out, but definitely um, preaching the gospel, helping people grow as Christians. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there's plenty of evidence. This is just not a Mark Hall spin. You can find plenty of founders saying this sort of thing. <clears throat> oh, go ahead. Yeah. Would you consider someone who considers, or someone who considers themselves an originalist, who, who reads the Constitution the way that the framers would have mm -hmm. had it in mind, um, do you think that someone who is on the judiciary, do you believe that they should read it through a Christian lens, read the law or the Constitution through a Christian lens? Yeah, that, oh, that's a good question. So if I can advertise another book that's coming out, because it's a really <laughs> fun book. Uh, my friend Daniel Dreisbach and I have a book coming out looking at America's great Christian jurist. And we profile um, about four jurists per century. And this really is a live and interesting question. Um, someone like a Justice Scalia, who's a very deeply pious man, 
would say absolutely not. I'm a ju judge. My judge. My job is to interpret the law. Um, and I guess I'm pretty inclined to say, yeah, I think that's right. So I think an originalist judge should look at an originalist understanding of the um, free exercise clause, the establishment clause, the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, and try to understand what that originalist understanding is. Now, there, um, there, there might be a time, and Scalia actually talks about this, where one's Christian faith might come into conflict with an originalist understanding. I'll give you an example. Um, A.B. Conan Barrett got into trouble with this as well. Um, what if you came to a conclusion, and I don't think this is the official stance of the Roman Catholic Church, but let's say you came to the conclusion um, that, that one's Christian faith made it completely inappropriate to ever sentence someone to death, all right? But an originalist uh, reading of the, um, of the Bill of Rights clearly permits for the death penalty, right? It's right in the Fifth Amendment. That no person's life, liberty, or property may be taken but without due process of law. Clearly a life can be taken as long as there's due process of law. And I hate the death penalty, incidentally. <laughs> but um, clearly as a matter of originalism, it's a constitutionally permissible um, punishment. So what should one do if one is a judge asked to rule upon the constitutionality of the death penalty, Scalia said you should probably resign rather than go against your Christian convictions. And I think he's right about that. Now, with the, the, so this is, but this has something to do particularly with the role of a judge. I think on the other hand, if one is an elected official, it is perfectly appropriate to, um, to you know, draw from one's Christian or one's moral standards as one um, passes legislation. Let me just give you a great example of this. Pennsylvania in 1780 passed a gradual manumission act. Uh, an act that would free the slaves in Pennsylvania gradually. And this act begins something like this, I'm paraphrasing it, but it says, recognizing that freedom is a gift from God and that we would be unjust in maintaining an institution of slavery that keeps people from, um, from their freedom, we hereby pass and on. I mean, they're clearly making Christian arguments for freeing the slaves. And I say more power to them, right? Um, the Civil Rights Movement obviously made Christian arguments for eliminating Jim Crow legislation. More power to them. That's absolutely appropriate. Um, but it's a difference in function between legislature and legislator and judge. There's one way in the back there. Yeah, I think this is going to be uh, our last question. So go ahead, Andrew. So you mentioned that several decades ago the judiciary scholarship was more committed to a secular view of this history than it mm -hmm. is today. So do you feel like the tide is starting to shift a little bit and people are, these scholarships affecting opinions or do you feel more like a voice in the wilderness? Or is there actual progress being made? That is a great question. I love that question. Thank you. Uh, my friend Daniel Dreisbach actually came up with a way of putting this and I think he's absolutely right. So if I was making the sort of arguments I make in this book, and I made some tonight about the original understanding of the Establishment Clause. If I was making these arguments before nine Supreme Court justices in 1982, William Rehnquist would be nodding his head, and the other eight would be sitting there, what are you talking about? I think today, if I were to make those arguments, every single justice would know what's going on. And so, what you see consequently, now part of that is because we've had a, variety, a good number of sensible Republican appointees to the court, right? A Clarence Thomas, an Alito, a Roberts. Uh, but I think they're right. You know, it's not just because of their partisan affiliation. But the other side, someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, until her most recent opinion, um, she had written four or five, and she was very much an outlier for never referencing founding era history because I think she knew it went against her. Justice Stevens, who I, I very much dislike on these questions, is actually intellectually honest. He said, he has said in some of the church, he said he's dead now, off the court for a while, but he said in a few of these church-state cases that if we were to go by the founders' views, we would have to permit this, say a cross on public land, but obviously we can't allow this to go on today, so we'll not permit it. What's he doing there? He's rejecting originalism, and making non-originalist arguments. This has a virtue of being intellectually honest. Okay, but that gets to your question. I think nowadays there's really no good excuse for people not knowing that Jefferson and Madison do not represent, first of all, that they really weren't strict separationists. That I think, honestly, Black and um, Rutledge really thought they were. No one today should think that they were the, that sort of separationist, and no one who works in this area or is a judge should um, think that the founders embrace this wall of separation. It's just really, really 
bad history. Let me hasten to say, because some people might take the wrong message from that. So my understanding of the Establishment Clause is that it pretty much means what it says. We're not going to have a national church by the incorporation doctrine. Now, we aren't going to have a state church either. There won't be an official state church in Kentucky. But I think um, almost every, anything else goes with respect to church-state cooperation. Um, so something like um, when it actually wasn't Maryland who erected the cross to honor World War I dead. It was a private organization, but eventually it, it did become uh, state property. But some states did that sort of thing. Um, that's constitutionally permissible. I think it would be a horrible idea to do that today, right? When you have men and women of a variety of faiths going off to Afghanistan and fighting and losing their lives and coming back and to say we're going to honor the sacrifice of this Jewish serviceman with a cross, that would just be profoundly rude and we ought not to do it, even if it might be constitutionally permissible. So I think a lot of things might be constitutionally permissible that might be very imprudent or bad or offensive. And here's where I think we need to bring our Christian faith into the public square and think, okay, what does it mean to respect our neighbor? And certainly doing something like that would not be showing respect for our neighbor. Well, Dr. Hall, thanks so much.